As we come back together, it is exciting and unnerving to be back in the pulpit. I've gotten to be a quiet observer in churches, which has been its upsides. Um, it's been a joy to listen to the sermons preached in my absence and, uh, and how the great themes of God's goodness, God's calling, the great challenge that comes from Scripture, the great comfort that comes from Scripture has been uh, preached to you faithfully by, by so many wonderful uh, men. And as we head back into our study in Acts, we'll be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 this morning. I just want to remind you how sort of the last eight weeks have continued to build on what we'll talk about this morning in our look at Acts chapter 4. Steve's sermons reminded us of Peter's uh, response to the questions that the crowds had. What does this mean and what do we do? What does it mean that the languages barrier is being broken down, that God is undoing Babel in a real and true way and gathering people together? What do we do in response to the resurrection and the reality of God's power being poured out and the promises fulfilled that your young men and young women will dream dreams that the Spirit will be poured out in such amazing ways that it'll transform your very sense of how the world works. The great wrongs being undone, even at the basic level of death being defeated. Jeff asks, what is God doing in and through this? Because we're always recognizing that He's transforming our first thoughts. And so he started to address the narrative we continue this morning about the man healed by John and Peter. And one of the points that I love to reflect on from that sermon that Jeff brought out was that that man had never entered worship. Because of the way in which the old temple worship ran, a broken body could not enter the holy place. And that to be made whole allowed him access. And his first response was to run into the presence of God. What is God doing? He is restoring that which was broken. That which what the world had said was undone is being redone in the person of who Christ is. And the healing that the disciples continue in Jesus' name. Brian uh, Fry told us the amazing story of David and Mephibosheth. And the beauty of David in a time when what you did was eliminate all of your competition, even if it was competition that was physically maimed, as we remember. Uh, the poor man dropped as a young child, unable to use his legs. David kept him in his own house. You didn't do that. In fact, in David's own household, later on, there's all kinds of discussion about who they're going to kill when David dies. And which brother is going to assume, uh, assume the throne? In dynasties, you don't leave people from the last dynasty alive unless you are so assured of your power. And that only comes from the power of God, assuring us that His will will be done. And so David has the ability, after having been lifted to that position by the faithfulness of God, in miraculous and marvelous ways through years and years of persecution and being on the run, 
David knows that what God establishes will not be undone and he has the ability to extend grace to one of Saul's last remaining ancestors. That's counterintuitive kingdom. That's the power of God breaking loose. And then Charlie reminded us last week of the importance of preaching the gospel to ourselves. There is a way in which we have to consciously engage with God's truth. Because the world around us and the pressures we engage in and my own spirit will regularly tell me lies about the brokenness of the world and the power of darkness to overwhelm me. And it's only when I grab hold of the word of God and remind myself what God has already said by his Holy Spirit that we speak the truth that does not change, that comforts and gives us a bedrock, a foundation on which to build our lives. It is not sand of our emotion or our thoughts or my view of the world, but on that which does not change. And so we preach the gospel to ourselves. And this morning when we see the boldness of Peter and of John, all of these themes that have run through hopefully my preaching before, certainly the preaching while I was gone, those themes give us the foundation and the the opportunity to get a peek into what is motivating and what is strengthening Peter and John and why on earth the Sadducees are so unnerved by what's going on. Let's put the text in front of us. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Hear now God's word. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many heard the message and believed, and the number of men grew by about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Ananias, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for the act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You all, the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are gracious to lead us and encourage us. We pray this morning that by your spirit, we might see afresh and anew the confidence that we have by your spirit to be instruments of reconciliation, to be those who embody the resurrection. And Lord, you do that first by applying it to our own hearts. 
and comforting us in the sure knowledge of intimacy with you. We pray this morning that as your word is opened, that it might feed your people, might be an instrument. And Lord, whatever is said that is not true or not useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So it's probably not shocking to uh, those of you who know me. It may be shocking to you who are visiting. I'm sorry. I probably spent a few times, a few hours in a principal's office growing up. And there are good reasons and bad reasons to end up in a principal's office, right? The bad reason is you're acting up and defying the right and good order and law within uh, your public uh, school education or uh, educational system in general. And so there were times when I may have gotten into disagreements, shall we say, with kids on the playground over whose Tonka truck it was. And that may have escalated far beyond all reason. And so there were times in which I had to be reprimanded uh, in the most strong language about what it meant to share Tonka trucks. But as I got older, I began to realize that there were times in which people got in trouble with the powers and authorities around them, in which instead of being the bully, they were the ones standing between the bully and their prey that there were ways in which standing between that bully on the playground and the person that he was picking on may cause you to get caught up in the fray in such a way that you get in trouble too. And as we started to raise our kids, we said, look, you can't be a bully. You will be tempted to use your position and your power, whatever it is, whether you're in first grade or seventh grade, To make yourself feel better by making other people feel less. And you get caught doing that, we will have words. Not just the consequences of your school, but the consequences on our own home. But there are other times where you will observe people being picked on and you are not to be silent. You may find yourself stepping between a bully and his prey and you may get caught up. And the principal may not have the bandwidth or understanding or the willingness to investigate what happened. And you may face consequences for standing between a bully and their prey. And you may have to face those in school, but you won't have to face them at home. And what we see in this passage is the beginning of God's people standing between the world and evil and its prey and being caught up in the unjust or unwillingness to understand the nuances that those in authority have, they end up being thrown in prison for healing a man. They end up being told to be quiet because of the power of the resurrection, because it threatens the authority and the structures that already exist. There are reasons that God's people, in fact, Jesus tells them, you will end up in the principal's office. If you follow me, you will find yourself standing against institutions and individuals who use their power, whose power is based on sin and death and darkness and fear. And as you undermine sin and death and darkness and fear, those who use those things for power will be in opposition to you. You will do righteous things and end up incarcerated. You will end up 
finding difficulties in your life. And so as Peter and John begin to embark on what it means to be disciples, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, they're finding themselves in conflict with the regular authorities and structures, which for most of their lives they hadn't even noticed or certainly wouldn't have imagined finding themselves in conflict with. These are the high priests of the temple. These are the folks running God's kingdom, at least in a worldly sense. And we find the disciples in conflict. So, very briefly this morning, why are the disciples in the principal's office to begin with? Where is the real power? And how do we access that power? How do we embody that power? So first, why are the disciples in the principal's office? Verse 2, they proclaimed in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now that's important. You see, it's, it's in Jesus. It is not just that they said Jesus' name. It's not just proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, although that's problematic, it is that there is a resurrection in the person of Jesus that has started and is being fulfilled in their very sight and hearing and in their lifetime. They're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That doesn't simply mean Jesus is resurrected, but that others are going to be resurrected too. Life is breaking out in a way that it hasn't before the resurrection. Death seemed to have sway before Jesus defeated it and came out of the tomb. How was death going to be defeated? Now we know, and resurrection is a real thing. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. If we go back to Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40, they asked Jesus that rather, I don't know, sophomoric question about one woman being married to seven guys and who, they'd be, who she would be married to in the resurrection. And Jesus says, you don't understand what the resurrection is about. You don't understand the nature of the new kingdom. And he silences their objection. Now the question is, why were the Sadducees not big fans of the resurrection? And why were the Pharisees perfectly happy with the resurrection? The scholars tell us that there is a way in which in Jewish thought, coming all the way through the prophets, the challenge with the resurrection is that the challenge, the resurrection, is that we have a returning king. You see, if you have an escapist faith where we all get taken away someplace else, the world is fine with that. They would be happy for all Christians to be taken away and live in some blissful cloud, whatever, and leave them alone. The problem with those who use worldly authority, power, money, sex, violence, fear, to maintain their position is that if God is coming back and if the resurrection is we get resurrected here and that the king is returning here and it's the evil that will leave, well, now that's more problematic for them. Because whenever God returns, it means their time on earth is now finite. It's no longer open-ended. And so there is a way in which, according to Amos chapter 5, 18 through 24 and 8 verses 4 through 6, that when justice returns, when the life returns, when God returns, those who practice injustice will be driven from power. And the Sadducees aren't idiots. 
They know how they make their money. They're worldly and practical and pragmatic. And they have risen to their position by making friends with the Romans and manipulating the religious beliefs of the people to maintain their own status and power. Now, to what degree some of them believed more or less that God was really there is, of course, as different as each person who was a part of the high priest's family. But nonetheless, they understood that when Jesus began to undermine their temple ministry and their power by running the temple, that they were threatened. The Pharisees had recognized Jesus' undermining of religious perfectionism as a way of life. The Sadducees saw Jesus as the one who undermined the power of sin, which they actually used, death, money, violence. That's why the Sadducees and the Pharisees unite, because Jesus is a threat to both kinds of power, religious perfectionism and worldly pragmatism. They unite at that moment. Interestingly enough, the Pharisees become less an issue for the disciples because as they see the gospel lived out, as they see the truth and justice and the integrity of the lives of the disciples, the Pharisees' questions become answered and many convert because they see the truth of the gospel. The Sadducees are hardened because their power is still based on the old rules of death. The disciples are in the principal's office because they are striking at the very declaration of the resurrection, the reality that justice will return and those who have hidden behind law that was unjust will find their power undermined. They will find themselves out of power. Matthew 24, 36 through 44 is that famous passage about the good who will be taken or leave and the bad will be taken. The Pharisees and the Sadducees understood what Jesus was talking about. God removes from the land, He purifies the land, all those who act out of accord with His justice and His mercy, act out of accord with life, act out of accord with the goodness and holiness of God. And so when Jesus tells the story of that justice coming, and when the day of the Lord arrives, they understand that Jesus is talking about them. We have to understand and wrestle with how the good things that we read in Scripture, when institutionalized, can become means by which oppression is extended by even God's people. When we find ourselves aligning with the Sadducees, with the rulers of the day, and being quiet in the face of the needs of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate. When we find ourselves not standing up with and alongside those who are by no fault of their own broken. This man at the temple gate was born without the use of his legs. He became poor and discarded. In fact, he became an accepted part of society. You just expected to have him sitting at the gate. The disciples undo what's expected 
Restore someone who was broken. Make him an equal to those who thought themselves superior for years and years and years. We function in a world that tells us that real power is being better or bigger or stronger than others. That is the narrative that our world tells us. It's told inside the church and it's told outside the church. It is in the air we breathe. It is present everywhere. Verse 8 and verse 12 breaks that. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit says, rulers and elders of the people, are we being called to account because we extended grace? We healed a man. And that's threatening to you. But it's by Jesus' name. The Christ. The Messiah. The true King. Where does real power come from? The Sadducees thought that real power comes from control of the institution. You had to come to the temple to offer the sacrifices. That meant that there was money to be made in the transaction of having uh, sacrificial animals dealt with. So a little money was made. How did they make it? They put it in the court of the Gentiles. So there was no extension of grace to those outside. Jesus speaks against that powerfully when he cleanses that area of the temple, making it open again for the Gentiles to come into his presence. They controlled the means of grace. They used the fear of the Roman overlords. And they used the judicial system. Right? The power is in the judiciary. The ability to put people in prison. They use that power to squelch opposition. Those who were rabble-rousers. Those who spoke against their power. We need to be careful, even in our own day and age, about the calls for being people of law and order. That's usually a declaration of fear of change. Law and order, unless it is just, unless it is in line with the ethics of God, is just another way of oppressing people who annoy you and threaten your power. Simple claim to the fact that a law has been written doesn't mean that that law is just. In fact, God warns us. Woe to you who enact, Isaiah says, unjust laws. God's people can't hide behind the fact that somewhere somebody wrote down and approved a law and suggest that that law of any given nation is a just law that fits with who God is. But the world tells us that's where real power is. So if you get put in prison, you must have lost And yet we're going to see through the entire book of Acts that God's people are regularly put in prison and it is a sign of God's power when he liberates and breaks the chains and shows that real power is not in worldly ability to control or to conquer or to abuse. It's in the kingdom. It's in the boldness of the touch. It's in the boldness of fellowship, whether emotional or physical, to include the care of everyone. God's people are going to see that expanded. At the very beginning, it is touching and caring for lepers and it is touching those who are broken in body and in spirit and including them in the people of God. And then they're going to realize that they have to understand how to care for the Grecian widows the same way they care for their own. And their vision of this is expanded. Of course, the church in the early church doesn't necessarily do it all right. 
but we see in Acts the expansion of what it means to extend grace and mercy. The real power comes from where? It comes from generosity and humility, living out the Beatitudes. It comes from suffering, which again is what one does on behalf of others. So again, if you get in trouble for standing up to a bully and it goes on your permanent transcript that you got in a fight and that follows you the rest of your life, is that, I, I suppose that's suffering. You're unjustly thought of as being a kid who picks fights when you know that what you did was saying, no, you can't call somebody that name. And that person reacted against you. Now that's a minor example, but are we building in that expectation that when we stand next to those that the world is exercising power over, that we won't be labeled the same way they will? There's a boldness to it, and it radically changes the world. Again, Acts chapter 4, verse 34, just a few verses down the road. What is described of God's people in verse 34 is amazing. And there was no one who had need among them. So you understand that this guy who'd been sitting at the temple gate for 40 some odd years begging, who was sort of left to be poor, because that's what you have. You're poor, you don't have legs, just kind of the way your life is. And people accepted it. And something happens when God's people begin to preach the resurrection, that justice is really going to return, that the king is going to show up, and that Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats might actually be true, and saying, Lord, Lord, when did we see you may not be a sufficient answer because we saw you at the temple gate. We thought it was your lot in life to be a cripple who had to beg. And then John and Peter, by the power of Jesus, see that man rise, and a person who had no probably useful, saleable skill, marketable, that's the word, right? Marketable skills is no longer poor. Why? Because God's people held things in common in a way, again, not socialism, long before Marx ever reared his ugly head. God's people were generous and there were no one among them who had need, which probably meant that everybody's quality of life or standard of living changed some degree, some down, some up in such a way that there were people recognizing that within the kingdom of God, within that enclave of people in Jerusalem, there was no one who was in need. Do you understand how that undermines the power of this world? They need an us and a them. There needs to be a have and a have not. There has to be a poor. There has to be a winner and a loser. There has to be someone for us to fear who's going to take our stuff. We need to stop people who are coming to take our stuff. We need to stop that people because their views are different. The power of the world is built on the fear of the other. And when the other becomes us and taken care of, the normal ways in which power and rulers and authorities get our support are undermined, and that's why the Sadducees are terrified. How will we rule if we do not have access to these ways of manipulating the emotions, the finances, and the anger of the people. There were none among them 
who had need. When it became raised to their attention after the formation or for the formation of the diaconate, they were treating one group different than another. God's people's response was to say, how do we do this better? That we might continue to understand and unpack what it means to preach the resurrection in Jesus. That justice has come. That the day of the Lord is a day that brings mercy. I could now preach through the entire Psalm 118, which I've done in my head several times. Because in that Psalm, and I encourage you to read it this week, that is the Psalm that has the stone rejected by the builders has become the capstone. And that is an amazing Psalm of David where he calls all of God's people, whether they are rulers and authorities or the common people, to praise the holy name of God. He talks about being delivered from death and fear and set free and then moving on in strength and in power and what God is doing. Psalm 118 is a picture of the impact of Pentecost writ large. And the foundation for that becomes the stone that the builders rejected, the things that the world saw as impractical and not wise because they saw sin and death as more powerful than life and love and truth. And they rejected that stone. And then we run to Daniel chapter 2 and we remember what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. That there would be great empires and they would build a great statue for themselves and then a stone would be broken off from the mountain of God, not hewn by human hands, but by the divine itself. It would roll down, knock over the empires and fill the whole earth. And the acts of God through the apostles that we see in this book is the rock filling the whole earth. And the Sadducees are the first ones who realize that they're in the crosshairs. That their power will stand for nothing compared to the power of the resurrection. The power of life spread. The practical application, which those who are regular at CVP will know I am lousy at. Because you got to chew on this stuff, right? I can't tell you in every situation, what it looks like to embody the truth and reality and justice of God, what it means to wisely stand next to those who are being ostracized by a culture and a society, what it means to speak against fear and anger and death and to speak towards life and mercy and justice. But when was the last time you were sent to the principal's office? For a good reason. When was the last time your boss asked you to be quiet? We were talking earlier today with somebody. There are rules about pregnant women being able to continue to work and laws that are supposed to protect them when they are uh, facing uh, physical difficulties and limitations that allow them to keep their job. And there are certain laws on the books. But the reality is not all bosses see those laws as applying to them because maybe they're onerous or maybe we'll lose profit or some way or another, maybe being generous to a pregnant woman will destroy our entire business. Possibly unfounded fears. What does it mean to advocate for a person who might be being pushed out of their job because that person doesn't have the advocate? I have an uncle who's a lawyer 
If I was being pushed out, I would call Uncle Weston and go, can they really do this to me? And what is my legal recourse? Many people don't have access to that. They would just feel, again, I can be pushed around by those who have power. I guess I'll just quit and find another job. What's our role? It's that practical. The kingdom of God is not some ethereal other thing. It is whether or not, and again, I don't care what the laws are in the land. Even if there were no laws protecting a pregnant woman, is it really something we should sort of watch quietly as she gets pushed out of a job because she's pregnant? Does that embody the kingdom? Is it any of our business? What does it look like to stand next to those who are being bullied or pressed out for financial reasons and the betterment of the whole or some sort of stuff? I don't know what it looks like in your life. I don't know what it looks like in those contexts that you have to maybe suggest that certain slurs are probably not the best way to describe somebody created in the image of God. It's in the air that we breathe. Again, just paint me a lefty liberal, but of standing, here's a joke. There's two doorways across from each other in a hallway in a public building. One has a long line and the other has no line in front of the door. What symbols are painted on those doors? Chances are one is an outline of somebody in a dress and that has a long line. And then the other one is a doorway has something without a dress, probably a guy, and there's no line. Now, we don't think much of that, right? But why is it that there are plenty of commodes for me and not enough because there's space? We get to 15 things. Why? Because women probably weren't in the room designing public buildings. But it's just the norm. And we go, is that wacky liberal thinking that one gender shouldn't have to wait 10 minutes to use a restroom when another gender doesn't? Is that really the eternal reality? Is this how people end up in salvation? No, no, no. But it is. What's the character and nature? Do we think of the other or do we only think of ourselves? If they're not in the room, who's there to advocate for them? What does it mean for justice to roll down like a river? It means we think of the other before they have to foist themselves upon us in rebellion and in cries in the streets for justice and mercy. We think of them before we think of ourselves. Peter didn't think whether or not he'd end up in jail by extending grace to somebody and then proclaiming it in Jesus' name. It is the subtle rebellions. It is inherent, though, in who we are. Because every society and every culture built by human beings, not greatly and regularly tempered and pushed against by the gospel, will have the other that it uses for its own means and gain and security. The revolution in Acts is that everybody matters. And a world that says only the important matter will find that offensive. How do we gently, graciously be wise in each one of our settings to know what it is to stand next to those who are being picked on, for lack of a better word, and risk going to the principal's office knowing that the real king, the real justice, is returning 
And it's truer and deeper than the temporal power that we often feel so oppressive and so powerful in our own lives. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to see Christ in our lives in each moment, even in the moments where we're stretched. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word, as convoluted as it may be, that we might recognize the truth of who you are. Lord, give us the courage not to do grand acts, but Lord, just in our quiet moments, to have the courage of Peter and John by the Holy Spirit to do what you would call us to do in the step right ahead of us. Lord, may we see your mercy, your glory, your justice, your resurrection in the most mundane areas of our life and give to you all the great healing and curing and worldly transformation that needs to happen. Lord, may we trust you and see you in our moments that we might delight in your willingness to use us to manifest your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.